the worst moment of my business career became probably, I have to look back on it and think it was one of the biggest catalysts as well. So not something I would have chosen to do, but it's something that had to be done uh, in order to ensure the survival of the business. On the Happy Workplace project today, we're joined by chairman and founder of Blueprint Interiors, Rob Day. Rob shares insights into how Blueprint create fantastic working spaces built around the psychological model human givens. He also spends a lot of time talking to us about what the office space of the future will look like. Hope you enjoy the episode. Rob, welcome to the Happy Workplace Project. It's great to have you on board today. I wondered if we could start by getting some insight into your career journey and how you've ended up doing what you're doing with Blueprint Interiors today. Yeah, so Blueprint will be 23 years old this year, so it seems a long time since I started at my dining room table on my own. But the journey before that, I suppose, starts just after my A-levels when I'd, I suppose I was always quite academic, but I was really heartily tired of education at that <laughs> point. And so I decided I was going to be an international financier and I went to work for Barclays Bank International and the truth is I went to live in Poole in Dorset which is a beautiful place and banking at junior grade at those times wasn't exactly an onerous task so I think what I was was quite lazy but I did two years of that and when I'd done enough sunbathing and windsurfing I thought I'd better go and get a degree after all so I phoned Lancaster University and because I'd had some work experience they basically snapped my hand off to go and do a degree in business and marketing which I hasten to add requires three A-stars now, so I wouldn't have got in these days. <laughs> you know, I, I had an interest in, I felt, I felt like business was something I would be interested in, in, in doing, really. When I left, I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living. Met a chap through my sister who said, yeah, my, my boss is looking to recruit graduates at the moment, go for an interview with him. So I went for an interview ostensibly for a job down in Bristol. And again, I was so shallow in those days, I'd dry up on a sunny day. I thought, well, I, I know Bristol, great place for a party. I'd happily live down there. What is it you do again? And it was something to do with pet food. I mean, fair enough. Anyway, I went for my interview. I had a call the following day from my friend who, and he said, yeah, the, the boss has asked me to offer you a job, but with me. And I went, oh, great. What do you do? So we design and fit out pubs. I said, okay, I know a bit about pubs, I think. So that was really how simple it was in, you know, back in the day. Ultimately, I moved kind of sideways from the leisure sector into office office fit-out, office furniture and office fit-out. And I did that for, I'm trying to think how long that would be now, because I'm really quite old. That would have been for about another eight or nine years. And at one point, I, I, I suddenly realised, I thought, I've, I think I can do this better myself. So tell us a bit about Blueprint Interiors. What's the mission that you guys are working towards? Well, it's been refined over the years. When I started, you know, I was fitting out offices and providing furniture solutions was the majority part of the business but it's fair to say that it's you know as my understanding of what it was we were really doing and providing and my understanding of our industry and and of course you know work life office office life I, I think it's fair to say now we dedicate ourselves to creating workplace environments for human beings this is really the distinguishing factor I believe about blueprint so we understand that employees are human beings first and employees second and that companies employers should realize that people are human and we've got some terrific insights into what it 
means to be a human being and what our fundamental needs are. So that informs our design ability. So how would you describe the cultural climate that you aim to foster within your workspaces then? There's our own workspace, of course. We have a fabulous office over at Ashby, which is, we hope, a living example of what good looks like. But of course, you know, for our clients, our objective is to create great spaces for them and for their people. We encourage businesses to understand that people are the key to achieving their own commercial objectives. And actually, the key thing here is, is empowering and trusting and then resourcing them as a prerequisite. So if you, you can have a great culture and great ideas, but if you don't action it, then you know, you, you, it's doomed to failure, I'm afraid. So yeah, empower and entrustment. And there's an implication in that, isn't there, culturally, that you know, we're actually grown-ups. So how have people's preferences evolved over the last few years within the workspace? Hybrid working, yes. however you define it, has become widely understood and people have availed themselves of the opportunity wherever possible, I think it's fair to say. Of course, what they've really done is address those first three issues in human givens. So they've addressed their security, their personal security, their personal sense of control and the autonomy that they feel they can execute over their daily existence. So those literally are, you know, a pushback against the institutionalization of the traditional office. So I would say that's absolutely the bit, you know, we're pushing against an open door now. The story we were telling, I think people understood us, you know, we've been telling this story for a long time now, five, six, seven years, as I say. We feel like we're pushing against an open door now. People are very receptive indeed to the ideas behind this. Well, why, why is hybrid working more successful? It's not the fact that you're working from home as opposed to working from the office. There are all sorts of technical reasons why sometimes that's better and sometimes it's worse, in fact. But the, re the reality is it's giving people a sense of control. Mm. And not, a, not just a sense, it's not just a sop to it, it's genuine control. We genuinely want people to have a degree of control over what they do and how they do it. At the end of the day, you know, you don't pay very bright people lots of money to do, to do the job and then tell them how to do it, do you? So, <laughs> Absolutely not. So there you go. That, that, I think that's the simplest answer I can give on that. Okay, Rob, so with that in mind, what influence has hybrid working had on the way that you design spaces then? Well, it, yeah, it has had a big influence. As I say, we've been, you know, we've, we have been developing this for some time and evolving our understanding of it, but you know, our ability to get direct feedback from clients has been really powerful. In fact, I, I suppose the, 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 key, the key components are integration of technology. So it's interesting, everybody says, oh, we can work on Teams now. Well, we've been using Teams and it's, other th things like Zoom and Starleaf, it's, it, other elements of it. We've been using that for a long time before, before COVID. And I think what a lot of people have, interesting, have begun to realise now is that it's not a panacea, it's not an alternative to a face-to-face to -to -face meeting. It's, you know, it can be a, a second best in terms of actually physically seeing somebody, but in terms of the kind of communication, it's the reason we're not doing this on Teams. Mm -hmm. yeah? So the ability to communicate, collaborate, and have those human interactions that, that define us and make us better than computers still. It, integrating tech is, is, is massive. So it's about knowing how to use it properly. So we, we, we're, we're helping advise clients on how to adapt those processes. And interestingly, I suppose the thing we're doing more and more of, as, as I say, the consultancy side of our business has grown very significantly. The bit that we're doing in, uh, in most cases with any significant science project is helping clients with their teams and holding workshops with them um, either at their place or indeed at ours. We're just, about, we're just going through a, another refurbishment at our place now. So we've been at Work Life in Ashby for six years and we're creating space that facilitates those much more detailed and integrated workshops. So we're able to help 
deliver the cultural change. I mean, it's, you know, I suppose lots of people say they're involved in change management. I never thought I'd particularly describe ourselves as that, but in essence, that's what we're doing. We're helping our clients with change management, specifically with reference to the built environment, but actually in terms of technology processes, behaviours as well. I mean, what we're really trying to do is help, say, your people can be empowered, can be entrusted, and here are the resources they need. What's the biggest challenge your organisation is facing at the moment, Rob? I think like most businesses, and, and has been a constant challenge for us since we started growing, so it's about getting the right people on board. It's not just people with the right sort of skills. You know, skills are, are learned, knowledge can be taught, but attitude's actually the big one, really. And, you know, and, and, you know people learn that, and they learn it, through, you know, the, the attitude is, part, is a reflection of the culture that they're in as well. So I think... You know, in terms of evolving our own culture, we've, we we really do endeavour to, you know, we practice what we preach. You know, we, you know, we, we're quite democratic in terms of how we physically do things. You know, my job and the others, that of the other leaders in our business, is to lead. You know, and to think strategically. But actually, the bit that's really that we that we want to do is for everybody to reach their potential. Because if they all do, if everybody that we touch, our own people, our clients. If we help everybody achieve their potential, the aggregate effect is we'll achieve ours as a business. Health and well-being has become really prevalent as a result of COVID or yeah. you know, been accelerated as a result of COVID. Yeah. What considerations can you provide for organisations that they should take into account of when trying to protect and enhance people's well-being sure. within the workplace? COVID as, a, as an experience, as a collective experience and as individual experiences was a very powerful moment of learning for us all you know we had lots of time mm. some of us would have done a bit more physical exercise some some wouldn't we had lots of time to think the bit that for me i think we've all learned and the bit that we are absolutely as i've already explained is is, is central to our philosophy is the importance that people understand that they are they're human beings not to define themselves as an employee working for 40 hours in exchange for x thousand a year you know that sort of contractual exchange i think is it's not helpful because it doesn't encourage you to fulfill your potential it encourages you to do what's necessary and i think most people would prefer to be enthusiastic and passionate about something and if it's work fantastic imagine you know, imagine if work felt like your hobby uh, so I offer this as an in, I offer this actually as a as a question to clients sometimes. You know, what do you do? What's your hobby? What what do you do? You know, it might be something like I know sailing. Well, fantastic, you know, great sport. Right? But you know, you spend a significant amount proportion of your personal wealth in terms of time and money on something that actually has no material output for you, does it? Other than your you feel good. Well, that's pretty important, isn't it? So you know that shows you how important it is to yeah. that you you put that value on your own personal health and well-being so why would you put up with conditions that you know that perpetuate feelings of inadequacy not performing well just being unhappy generally mental health and well-being has historically been viewed as less important or it's i think it's because it's just been less understood i think most people have understood now it really is a thing it's okay to not feel great on certain days I saw a thing on LinkedIn this morning, actually, which I reposted, which was, you know, I try to do my best every day, but every day my best is different. You know, sometimes it's down there. That's the best I can do today. That's okay. Sometimes it's up there. That's great too. So, Rob, can we take a forward view and think about, let's say, five years' time? What do you anticipate that the office of the future will look like? There's a bit of us that can't help feeling a wee bit smug because we were saying five years ago, technology is really going to 
empower people, free people from the desk and allow people to be much more mobile in their environment and, and physically where they work. So we have been working from home when it suits. It's, you know, some of our people live 20, 30 miles from the office. Well, if you've been to a meeting, why would you drive to the office just to be present in the office? So we've had a practical sort of approach to that and we've resourced people so that they can work effectively from home. So moving server to the cloud, making sure people have got good internet connections at home, that sort of thing, giving them good quality furniture, but, but just essentially letting them decide where the optimum place is for them to work at that given moment. They're the best, they're best place to do it. You know, they're smart people, pay them, we pay them to make those decisions. So the Office of the Future, it already looks like we thought it would do, which is good. So it's not rows of desks. It doesn't look like a battery battery farm. There's an argument that there'll be less offices. And I, ha and I guess the one that immediately jumped to me was, you know, watching Central London Canary Wharf, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet. And I remember thinking, wow, it's crazy, isn't it, that people who are so highly paid, some of these kind of hedge fund guys, you know, they're enormously well paid, and yet they're they're shoved into gilded cages, let's say, at best, but they are, they're awful environments to work in. Why would you ever want to do that? And I, I genuinely think their time is over. Those huge, great production lines, I, I think, are over. And, and the thing that's really behind this, what's really going on, so the bit, the bit that I believe we've really understood is the change, in, the change in dynamic in work, in work itself. So what is work? So the reason offices kind of look like factories is because they were, people were doing factory work in an office. So 30, 40 years ago, certainly when I worked for the bank, we moved paper. We literally moved paper from desk to desk, like you would move a piece of metal on a production line. And so that process was really very linear and very controlled and you could simplify it and all the rest of it. And obviously in the last 20 years or so, we've been moving data, but we've been moving data in a very linear process nonetheless. Uh, the, the big change is AI. AI is coming and in every day, it, it impacts our lives more and more. The example I give to people is, is banking, you know, the industry I first started in. There's a branch on every street corner. You know, I usually hold my phone up to a client and go, Mobile. that's banking. Every single mechanical bit of banking I need is on my phone in an app. So we're going to see more and more process automated. And so, some of the jobs that are being done now, right now, won't exist in certainly 10 years time. And I'd say five years time is, is very likely. I think there are jobs that will exist in five years time that simply don't exist right now. So this one always makes me smile because you know, my youngest grandson's five years old now and I keep thinking, what are you going to do when you grow up? And it, I don't, the answer is I genuinely don't know because that job probably doesn't exist right now. We will need to be better at thinking, problem solving, communicating, explaining. Rob, let's talk about you for a bit. I'm really interested to understand how you would describe your leadership style. Contrary to perhaps my personal style, I think I am very focused and I am very objective-led. I've you know, set out to do some very specific things and I think we're in the middle of achieving those and some of them we have and some we're ahead of the curve, some we've still got some way to go. You know, the one phrase for me that underpins everything else is win-win. Is you know, sort of, if you win at my expense, you're plus one, I'm minus one. The mathematical result is net zero, yeah. different kind of net zero. You know? If, if you win and I win, that's one plus one. We've, we've actually created real wealth in the world is the way I think of it. So, so you know, win-win, A, it's a much nicer way to live. <laughs> to be, you know, to have positive, constructive relationships with as many people as you can. And frankly, to avoid those people who, who want to be, who, who want to achieve it through conflict. I just, I just don't need to do that. That's what I realised. It's taken me a long time to realise that, but you don't need to do that.
It's about having the simplest possible, clearest strategic vision, explaining it as clearly as possible so that nobody's in any doubt as to what the objective is, but then let them work out how to do it. Yeah, I agree. And thinking about what you've just said there, mm. what are the values that underpin the way that you operate yeah. and why are they personal to you? These are personal to me, but interestingly, we specifically, about seven years ago, as part of our whole rethinking about our marketing strategy was we set out to establish what our values were collectively as well as individually. So we ended up with something that we all subscribe, we were all, all happy to subscribe to. And, and we actually use it as a filter for everything now. And the first one's dead simple. It's just love what you do. If you don't, it might be painful. And I know it might sound trite or patronizing, but if you don't love what you do, plan to do something that you do love because you'll be brilliant at it. You, you'll enjoy it and it will ultimately get you closer to fulfilling your potential. So we've all done rotten jobs. You know, I, I worked in a biscuit factory for, you know, as the lowest of the low, scraping bits of crusty biscuit off, off ovens as a, as, a, as a student job. It's horrible, money was good, horrible, horrible conditions. You just put up with it for the time, don't you? There's a, there's a greater sort of objective part of it. Second one's creativity. So I know people go, oh yeah, but you're a design business. Well, we are a design business. I'm not a designer, but, Creativity for me is about problem solving, your attitude to what problems you're confronted with, you know, what your clients tell you their problems are. Well, be creative. I especially like saying that to our accountants as well, because they go, creative accounting is actually a sort of potentially a criminal offence. So it always makes them smile, but genuinely you know what I mean. It's it's about think of new and better ways of doing something compared to how you did it today. And that's dead simple. And the last one is integrity, which is interesting. So when I you know, if we get somebody interviewing somebody, we have somebody new starting, I always say, what do you think the integrity bit means? It's like, oh, well, oh, you know, we're honest, trustworthy, loyal, enthusiastic. Yeah, of course we're all those things, but not being funny, you don't go and tell somebody you've never met, hi, I'm Rob and I'm honest. Said, no, what it is, is win-win. Yeah, so this whole idea of win-win. Integrity means, it's, you know, we want the, the big prize, the joint prize, yeah? The one, that, the one that makes it better for all of us. And we do that through win-win. You know, yes, we have to negotiate hard. We get negotiated hard with by our clients and we do the same with our suppliers to make sure we find the best value in whatever project we're putting together but we respect our mutual positions and the fact that we're here for the long term you know it's not this sort of zero-sum game that some people try and play it's not this what's the lowest common denominator we're always looking for the value in something what's the biggest misconception people have about you probably i'm a soft touch maybe and I guess I kind of am in some ways because I genuinely believe I try and give everybody absolutely one chance, first go, I'll go out of my way to do that. And you do get bitten sometimes, there's no question. And I think there are some times when you think people think they recognise something in you and they might try not to play for the win-win. You've talked us through your journey so far and it's been brilliant in terms of the progression that you've achieved and where you've got the business to. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe give us some insight into the sacrifices that have been made to get you to the point as to where you are today? Sacrifice implies sometimes there's a choice, doesn't it, actually? I'm not sure there has always been a choice. I think there are always compromises. And it's, you know, as I said, you know, might, you know I might sound like an idealist in women, but that, if you don't go for that, then you'll, you won't get it. If you do go for it, but you don't quite get it, but you get something that looks, looks and feels and sounds quite like it, then that's better probably than the alternative. 
So there are many things that I have done that I regret doing that I would have done better. But, you know, we're all wise now. I'm 64 next September. So, you know, I'm definitely a bit wiser than I was 20 years ago, 23 years ago when I started out. I don't regret anything because I'm kind of fatalistic. You know, it's not that kind of everything happens for a reason. Stuff happens. You either learn from it or you don't. I get up every morning excited by what's you know, kind of why what's the unknown as well. There's stuff that I'm doing that I want to see happen and I see my plans come to fruition, but there's stuff I still get excited about that bit, you know, the unknown, you know, the, the, the you know, that lovely bit about being a human being here. You meet new people every day, I love it. For many years, I felt like I'd miss my kids growing up. You know, I'd be out the house at seven in the morning, sometimes earlier, and back after they'd gone to bed and I felt like I used to see them at weekends sometimes. Now, that, that's, my that's my perception and that's my, my, they're all grown up now, my children. And I, I did actually mention this to them individually and collectively at one point. And they, it's interesting, they reassured me that wasn't, that's not how they remember it. So, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's very important not to get bogged down in your own personal perception of whether you've done something right, wrong, badly, wrong, well or whatever, you know. You're looking in the mirror all the time, aren't you? Kind of mm. thing, you know. You're, you're a reflection of everybody else you work with. So, yeah, I don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Could you describe your own relationship with your well-being, and is there anything that you do to protect and optimize it? Well, my relationship with my own well-being has has been mixed. You know, I, arguably, I still need to focus much more on my own physical fitness because it's easy to not go out and do that exercise and all the rest of it. I guess, unfortunately, I had a sense of, you know, a self-awareness about mental health and well-being for quite some time, I suppose. But the fact is that I was exposed to human, the whole notion of human givens by some deeply personal experiences within my family, in terms of family health, that affected me very badly, very, very badly indeed. And so my personal experience of psychology and mental health issues was trying to understand what was wrong with me. And reading about human givens and literally going that is that's a very simple explanation for not just what's going on with me with me right now but it's that's the truth Th this explains what goes on in with people at a very you know in a very simple way in a, you know in this overriding overarching embrace all embracing framework so i have made very conscious decisions to you know to ensure that after a particularly bad episode that i look after myself, try not to be too hard on myself in terms of being being too self-critical. Try to do more physical exercise. I'm, I always say I haven't got enough time, but you know, I, I, you know, I know I need to find more time to do that because I want to be around to see my grandchildren grow up as well. Uh, for some time now, I think probably for over 20 years, I've been working with a coach, you know, somebody who, it's interesting really, he listens to me and lets me talk, which I don't have any trouble doing as you've probably worked out already by now, but it's an interesting technique. So basically he listens very carefully, steers me with the odd question until I talk it out and work it through myself and come up with the, hopefully the right answer to the, to the question I was struggling with. A long time ago, I remember somebody saying, pay for the best advice you can afford and then take it. it was a pretty good general business or life lesson. So I've, I've tried to do that. You know, surround yourself with really good people. Surround yourself with as many opinions as you can, you know, physically take on board, I guess, as well. Perspective is everything, really. What's the most difficult decision you've had to make so far in your career? I have made some bad decisions about people I've brought on board, and that they, they were the wrong people on the, in the wrong seat, on the wrong bus, at the wrong time, and you know, mutual agreement in most cases, we, we, we parted company. The very worst moment, I, I know exactly when it was, it was in the financial crash where that year we were 
really experiencing some very solid growth. We literally could see us doubling our turnover that year. And by the halfway point, we were absolutely on target. And then the financial, the, the, the outcome of the financial crash hit us as a, as a business and, and industry generally. And we literally, I think we billed a hundred thousand pounds in the remaining six months instead of a, instead of a million. At the time I can remember thinking, gosh, you know, this sounds like a, you know, a, a repeat of the great depression from the 1920s that I read about in history books. All the evidence was that we were simply not going to be able to sustain the growth that we'd undertaken over the previous few years. So the very worst decision was re reducing the company down to myself and two core people, making four people redundant. In hindsight, actually being quite gratified by their, their response. So they were they seemed to be as concerned about as much about me and the company as they were about themselves, which I thought was extraordinary. We, we had a great relationship. They've all gone on to, you know, life sometimes pushes you off track and sends you down another path and, and they're all doing really well. So who knows what it would have been like if we'd all stayed together. I suppose arguably now in hindsight, the worst moment of my business career became probably, I have to look back on it and think it was one of the biggest catalysts as well. So not something I would have chosen to do but it's something that had to be done uh, in order to ensure the survival of the business and that, that the, you know, who we are now, what we do, how we think is probably those foundations were grounded in, in, in that moment. You're heavily involved in the education space from mm. a trustee perspective. What do you think schools need to be doing to help prepare people yeah. for the world of the future? It's an opportunity here to celebrate what Lancaster Academy in Leicester does. So that's a school I work with very specifically. And the principal there, Anna Fisher, and her colleagues and predecessors have built a set of values in the school, which the acronym READY, R-E-A-D-Y. And those values, they exercise every day in every lesson and in every facet of the school life. And they're values that, that aren't necessarily educate you know they're not educational technical educational they're about how to behave how to think so ready um, the first one is just be respectful so you know cooperate creative love what you do win-win treat treat people how you like to be treated yourself so respect e is employability so you're here at school to learn and to get ready unless you're very lucky for the world of work, whether that's private sector, public sector, charity, unless mum and dad's a millionaire and you're just going to sit there in a debt chair for the next 50, 60 years, you're going to have to work. And, you, and as I've already alluded, even if you can afford not to, you probably should. <laughs> yeah, so go and do something voluntary. So employability, you know, we need to teach people what's employable mean. You know, we've had people come to us for work experience and they didn't know how to answer a telephone. They didn't know how to speak to somebody. They had, you know, they were, they were shy and all the rest of it, but nobody said, look, this is how we talk to people, this is how we talk to people. You know, get called sir. I'm not sir, I'm Rob. You know, if you talk, you've got to talk, you call your teacher, sir, you've got to call them sir, call me Rob. A, accountability. You know, be accountable for your own actions, yeah, your own behaviour. You're here to be taught, yeah, you're here because you're young and you, you've got lots to learn, but you are accountable. You, you have to take responsibility and be accountable for your own actions. You can come here and do nothing, or you can come here and try your hardest. So be accountable. That's really important, pretty important value that. It's something you know, to teach self-reliance, really important. Diversity, you know, again, you know, without any sort of political, racial, sexual connotation to it. It's about just celebrating the fact we're individuals. You know, everybody you meet, no matter what color they are, what religion, that's kind of, that's totally irrelevant. It's, they're gonna be different to you. If they're the same color, the same religion, the same sexual orientation, they're still gonna be different. So diversity is accepting we live in a world with 
currently 7 billion plus individual people. Yeah, so let's celebrate it and make it work for us. And then, and then the, the final one, the why, is young ambassadorship. So it's to, to understand that they represent something more than just themselves. They represent Lancaster Academy, the school, their colleagues, the teachers, you know, how they behave, how they, how they present themselves to the world reflects on the school. And you know, being part of something is, is actually another very specific human given. It's one of those specific categories in human givens, the need to feel identified and part of a community. So I think those values are what make Lancaster such a successful school when they've got the most extraordinarily challenges in front of them, you know, in terms of demographic, in terms of uh, some of the history that's there as well. They they have achieved achieved extraordinary things and are held up by the LEP as an example. Of, of fantastic practice. I'm really proud to be associated with it. So those, those are the values that I would be uh, exactly what I think is missing from, from current education. That's what helps people get ready for the world of work and ready to be a, you know, a useful member of society and, and know how to behave in a community. Okay, Rob, so what's your ultimate life goal? I can answer that since September last year in, I think it's four sentences and 27 words. So I've already said how much, I value, how much value I've placed on coaching. And talking to the right people. So there's a guy called Gary Dunstan. I don't know if you'll ever see this, but he helped me through. We went through a quite a detailed process. It was enjoyable, sometimes quite quite painful as well, of just thinking through my ideas. And so I'll tell you exactly what my goal is. It's and the interesting thing was it's actually in the reverse order of what I set out. So I realized that I need to live my life peacefully. It's a prerequisite. It's not, it's not objective, that's actually a prerequisite. I need to live my life peacefully so that I can fulfill my potential, so that I can help fulfill Blueprint's potential or anybody else I come into contact with. And then the phrase I use is, so I step lightly off the boat. So I've got a passion for sailing and boats and stuff. And interestingly, because I've just bought another boat, so I'm stepping off one boat onto another. I, I love that analogy, but it's so clear in my head all the time. And I'm so grateful for those insights that I got with that work with Gary that I can say it without prompting, and it's in my head all the time. And that's what's massively helped my own, you know, I suppose emotional intelligence, mental health and well-being. I need to live peacefully, not negotiable. Love that. Me too. <laughs> when you've achieved the things that you're aiming to achieve and you've finished, let's say, with your career, <laughs> yeah. how'd you, how would you like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered as somebody who's done some good, but. I kind of use the phrase, there are people who, you know, when you meet people in life, there are people who add to your experience, aren't there? And there are people who sometimes quite honestly subtract from your experience. And then there are very worst cases, those people who are actually really divisive. So, you know, in, in a room or in some kind of organisation, and we, I guess we've all met them, and they really are destructive, yeah? And then even rarer still are those people who I would describe them as multipliers. So whatever they touch, whatever they do, there are, there are, unseen benefits you start something you don't know where it's going to end you don't you don't really know what the outcome is but you just feel like you've done the best you can and so to be thought of as somebody who's you know i try to benefit as many people as i can because that's fulfilling that's what i'd like to remember as okay rob so we're on to our quick fire round number one is what's something that you've achieved that you're proud of my dad said i wasn't mechanically minded i remember him saying that rob Bob, he used to call me. You're not really mechanically minded, which is, he was such a nice guy otherwise, but I always felt, felt a bit done down by that. So when I've done something like, 
fixed a motorbike or you know overcome some technical challenge or built something physically like I've done at home. I, I quite enjoy DIY and stuff at home as well. I feel like if you could see me now, you'd go, yeah, that show was wrong. <laughs> How did you react to your greatest failure? I was determined for it not to be over. What's something that you regret and would have done differently with hindsight? Worrying about things I couldn't control. Somebody said to me, it's like paying interest on a debt you don't actually have. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what do you like most about yourself? I try and see the best in people. What's your biggest area of development? I think it continues to be me. It's, by definition, it's the, the thing I've got most control over, I suppose, isn't it? You know, I, I'm, I love continuing to learn and understand the world around me and the stuff I'm specifically trying to do. I, yeah, I just wanted to just get a better perspective, just look, keep on doing what I'm doing. Keep yeah. moving forwards. Yeah. Tell us about something that you're passionate about. I'm passionate about celebrating individuality, yeah, but, but working together as a team. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Always learn more than you think you need to. And finally, what's one book or podcast that you'd recommend for our subscribers? I suppose the one, I, I actually give it away every year to the scholarship winner for the prize I put up at Lancaster, and it's Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Fantastic. Rob, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for all the insights that you've shared, and good luck with everything that you're achieving at Blueprint already. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Remember to like and subscribe. See you next time.